Um, but yeah, I, I serve as a family life pastor here, and uh, it's my joy and honor to share uh, God's word with us today. You know, this is such an interesting time of the year. Uh, I don't think there's any holiday like Christmas that can bring a mixture of contrasting emotions. Uh, right? There's this unique buzz and excitement, anticipation uh, for the Christmas holiday. Uh, but I also acknowledge that there can be a dread and a loneliness and a darkness that many of us would carry uh, inside. Right? There's finals, there's deadlines at work, uh, obligations, presents to buy, money to spend, family events that can produce negative emotions. Uh, but then we have all the lights and we have all the music uh, that kind of contrasts. Um, it's such a stark contrast. And it's just so weird uh, dealing with the mixture of all these feelings that we have. And given also that it's at the end of the year, we kind of reflect on what happened this past year, but also what didn't happen uh, that can put us in a dark place as well. So we can experience delight, but also dread. Uh, anticipation, but a deep anguish. Excitement, but also anxiety. And so what do we do with the, uh, these complex emotions in this season? You know, when we took an, take an honest look at how Jesus entered this world, it was full of scandal, filled with drama. It was messy. It was dirty and actually quite uncomfortable. It's far from like the precious moment like nativity scene that some of us were familiar with. Um, and I think Christmas invites us to feel all these things because it can hold the weight of all the different feelings that we have. In the birth story of Jesus, we see hope, but we also see loss. We see singing, a lot of singing, but also sorrow. Pain, but also promise. And so if you're feeling those things today, I'm glad that you're here and and we hope uh, to see the good news in this story. For the past few weeks, we've been uh, celebrating Advent. And Advent simply means coming or arrival. It's a time for the church to reflect on how Jesus first entered the world. But also, uh, it creates anticipation for his promised return. He, he's coming back for us one day. Where he will restore and make all things new. And for this specific Advent season, we're taking a look at Jesus through the eyes of the major players in the birth story. So first we saw it through Mary's eyes. A young, ordinary teenage girl who gets the news that she is carrying inside her womb the Messiah, the Savior of the world. What a life-shattering message to receive. Secondly, we uh, looked at Herod, a self-proclaimed king of the Jews who saw Jesus as a threat and try to get rid of Jesus at any cost. And today, we want to see Jesus through the eyes of his earthly father, Joseph. So if you have your Bibles, please turn uh, with me uh, to the book of Matthew chapter 1. And we'll read verses 18 through 25. And I'll be reading from the New International Version, the NIV. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles or your apps, it's going to be up on the screen for you guys to follow along. Let's give our full attention as I read God's word for us. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. 
But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is, con what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is God's word. Amen. You know, to go from Mary to Herod was like a complete extreme. Uh, but yet again today, we have another 180 to go from Herod to Joseph. Uh, in these two men, we have polar opposites, both in content and also character. Uh, with Herod, we have both biblical and historical literature sharing so much detail about who he was and what he did, what type of king he was. But when it comes to Joseph, very little is said, both in the Bible and also in historical records. Herod, though a villain, was a major player in the birth story, and he even is given a few lines in the Gospels. But Joseph, on the other hand, isn't given a single line in the gospel story. And even compared to Mary, arguably the most famous person next to Jesus in all of the Bible, Joseph is just kind of there, right? He's our equivalent of like an Instagram husband who's constantly shedding light on his wife. And you would think the earthly father of Jesus would get more screen time. He'll get a few lines in the gospel script, but that's not the case. It's uncomfortably silent when it comes to Joseph. You know, the last we actually hear about Joseph was when Jesus was 12 years old. They're at the festival of the Passover, and he goes missing for about three days. Uh, Mary and Joseph eventually find him sitting, listening, and impressing the teachers at the temple. But that's the last time Joseph is mentioned in the gospel stories. So the writers think that Joseph passed away uh, sometime between the ages uh, when Jesus was 12 to 30. Because we don't see him at all in Jesus' ministry. And he's nowhere to be uh, seen at the crucifixion. And that's why Jesus says to John, his beloved disciple, take care of Mary, his mom. But even then, they don't even tell us how he died. <laughs> I kind of feel sorry for, for Joseph. Right, where's the love for him? But on further reflection, and as I was verbally processing with our staff this past week, I think that's the beauty. Uh, there's so much beauty in the and strength in the story of Joseph because it is so quiet. And there's so much silence when it comes to his life. You know, Joseph's story has all the makings of a crazy drama, but we're only given a few paragraphs. He had good reasons to act out, to be enraged and cause a scene, but we see the opposite. You know, marriage, very different in Jesus' time. Uh, they were arranged, which I'm like hoping that it comes back, arranged marriages. Um, having four kids of my own now. Um, two families will get together on several occasions, and if the man and the woman, they're actually pretty young, uh, if they wanted to proceed, uh, they would be betrothed betrothed. 
And betrothal is, is a little bit different than the engagement that we have today. Uh, it was legally binding. Uh, a ring would be given, gifts would be exchanged, but they were basically husband and wife. Uh, but they will live separately, and not until they consummate the marriage, on their wedding day were they officially husband and wife, which would typically happen a year later from the time they were betrothed. Uh, so again, it's like engaged, being engaged, but a little bit more serious. There are legal consequences if it didn't work out. We're told that Joseph and Mary were betrothed to one another, um, but they were pregnant. She was pregnant with a son that is not his. This was a problem. He is not the father. And here we find out a few important uh, details about who Joseph was. Matthew tells us that Joseph, Joseph was faithful to the law. Another translation, he was a righteous man. Not only was he righteous, we also not know that he was compassionate. He was compassionate. Knowing the consequences for a woman in that time who was betrothed, but pregnant with another man's baby, uh, which could have been as severe as death by stoning, he decides to divorce her quietly to not cause a scene. And this was Joseph's plan. This is the type of man Joseph was. But before he could do that, an angel comes and tells Joseph in a dream and explains Mary's situation and tells Joseph to take Mary as his wife. Take her as your wife. And he wakes up and he does just that. Joseph was faithful and compassionate. But actually the most important thing about Joseph was his family. He comes from the lineage of the greatest king of Israel, King David. And so Matthew, Matthew's gospel opens up with a genealogy. You know, and most of us, whenever we see a list of names, we just kind of skim over it. We don't think much of it. But we have to understand that when the audience of Matthew's gospel was reading this genealogy, it meant something. It was powerful. And also for those of us who read the Bible, we see the Old and New Testament. And we kind of just read it, like, seamlessly. But we have to remember that there was 400 years in between the Testaments where God was silent. There was no prophet, no messenger. There was no, God, uh, no mention of God intervene, intervening. Israel was left in the dark, wondering where God is. Utter silence. And that silence was broken with the list of these names. And so this was good news to the people, especially because the, the land of Israel was now occupied by Rome. They had no land to call their own. And even the king that they had, the self-proclaimed king, he was a maniac, a mass murderer. People were waiting for some good news to come. And this is what they got. They got a list of these names. This genealogy was good news. God hasn't forgotten his promise. And he is about to do something. And when you go through those names, these are major players, pillars of Judaism. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon. And then we get Joseph, who is a carpenter, who grew up in a podunk town called Nazareth. But he comes from the line of David. 
What is the Christmas message about? It's about family. Families. God's plan from the very beginning was to reveal himself to the world, to share his glory through families. We see that with Adam and Eve in the garden. We see it in the call of Abraham and Sarah. God's plan was to bless families so that families can be a blessing to the nations. But when we look at all these families, yes, we see God's blessing. Yes, we see great men and women, but we also see the curse of sin. You know, the Bible is so brutally honest when it comes to the dysfunction and the brokenness of families. It's, it's, it's like oversharing of, of how corrupt and how broken these families were. And we can't go through all of them, but I just want to look at the first four names. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. These are the first four names. All right, Abraham. Let's start with Abraham. He basically prostituted his wife. Not once, but twice. He, he was so afraid that these kings... Because Sarah was so beautiful that they would kill him and take Sarah. And so he lied about Sarah, saying, He's my, she's my sister. He didn't do it once. He did it twice. Not only that, he listens to his wife and takes Hagar, Sarah's servant, and sleeps with her. Gets her pregnant. And now there's jealousy between Sarah and Hagar. And Hagar and Ishmael, his, her son, is now out, outcasted. This is Abraham. All right, Isaac. He doesn't go as far as to prostitute his wife out, but he does the same thing as his father. He lies about Rebecca and says, she's my sister. But this family was destroyed by favoritism, sibling rivalry, deception, and stealing. That's Isaac's family. Jacob, Isaac's son, he's now on the run from his brother who he stole from. And he's scared for his life. And so th- this family is now broken. They're all spread apart. His uncle Laban, Laban deceives Jacob, who worked seven years, thinking that he was going to get Rachel, who he desired, but to find out to wake up next to Leah, the less desirable sister. He works for another seven years to get, to get Rachel, and then he gets rich. How? By tricking his uncle. And now he's on the run again. This is Jacob. Then we have Judah. Man, he, he leaves his family and he ends up marrying a Canaanite, Canaanite woman who was seen as an enemy of Israel. His two sons were so evil that God killed his two sons. And Tamar, his daughter-in-law, disguises herself as a prostitute, sleeps with his father-in-law, her father-in-law, and gets pregnant. These are the four, first four. We can't even get to all of them. These are just the first four men and their families. Not to mention King David, the line of Joseph, and his exploits. Murder, adultery, and then his own son tried to kill him. You know, the writers of Game of Thrones and the House of Dragons would blush reading the Bible. And so what do we glean from this? What do we glean from this lineage, this genealogy? Sin is all pervasive. It invades all of life. And it's felt most deeply, actually, in families. There's a generational pattern that we've seen over and over again. It's obvious 
the pattern of sin, how it goes from one generation to the next. But then we get to Joseph. And I'm like, I'm like waiting to see what happens for this situation. If anyone would act out, if anyone would be enraged, it would be Joseph. And I'm waiting to see what would happen. What, 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 what's going to happen? What's, what's the next form of brokenness for this family? But we don't get it. We don't get it. He's just faithful and he's good. And here we get the break in the pattern. There is beauty. There's strength in the quiet and silent life of Joseph. You know, I don't really like sharing about how being a husband and father affects how I read the scriptures. But when it comes to Joseph and the situation he had to go through, I mean, my mind is just blown. I can't believe what Joseph did. You know, I remember being uh, pregnant uh, with Deacon, um, our first. Jane had severe morning sickness, but it came at the night, nighttime. Every night she would just violently throw up in the bathroom, and I would just be standing out the door not knowing what, what I could do. I can't do anything. I was like, can I help you? She's like, get out. Get away from me. You know, and pregnant women, they develop a super, super power, the super sense of smell. Uh, I would open the fridge and immediately from the other room, my, my wife would scream, did you open the fridge? I'm like, whoa, whoa, yes, I did. And one, one smell that turned her off constantly was the smell of rice. I'm like, rice? I live on rice. <laughs> and uh, she has such extreme nausea that um, she would sigh constantly. She'd be like, <sighs> Like every second, right? And you would think as a husband that would be compassionate. But I was, I got one time, I got so frustrated at her sighing and got so upset that I just went <sighs> <laughs> out of annoyance. And Jane wept, she cried. Yeah, right? I'm such a jerk. You know, I may get, I, I may get in trouble uh, with this, but. You know, the setting around our, our first pregnancy was, was, was good, right? At the time, we were living in Cerritos. Uh, we were at the house that Jane grew up in. Uh, she gave birth in a nice hospital and with a community around us supporting us, right? It was a pretty good situation. I, I can hear Jane saying, that's easy for you to say, right? <laughs> to say that it was rough for Joseph and Mary would be a gross understatement. Remember that they were betrothed but not officially married. Nazareth was a small town. This was public news of their betrothal. But Mary's stomach was swelling. But they're not married. Imagine the stares and what people were saying. Imagine how much shame that they had to endure together each and every day. And you would think that being pregnant with God's son, that God would like kind of show... A little bit of like, make it a little bit easier for them. But nope. You know, Joseph and Mary were in Nazareth for the pregnancy, but a decree was sent out by Caesar Augustus that required everyone to register their family. So uh, Joseph had to go back to his hometown, Bethlehem, right? Which was 80 miles of mountainous trekking. Now for us, that's Oceanside. From here to Oceanside, walking. In her final trimester. I can't, even, I can't even imagine that. 
But once they get there, there is no inn, no space anywhere. So they set, settle for an, like a stable where animals are. And instead of a nice heated crib, they have to place their baby Jesus in a feeding trough. They can't settle down yet. Herod commanded all the boys under the age of two to be killed. So they flee to Egypt, which is about 5,000 miles when Jesus was a little baby. And after Herod dies in 4 BC, they return ultimately to settle back in Nazareth where Jesus would spend most of his childhood and his early adolescent years. I can't imagine doing this for my own son, Deacon, which there's no denying that he is mine. Everyone tells me, oh, Deacon is your son. Like you guys have the same eyes, you guys have the same hairline, and my sensitive self, I'm like, what's wrong with my hairline? <laughs> like everyone says he looks just like you. For my own son, I don't know if I can make all this, you know, do all this for him. But for Joseph to do it for a son that he's not even his. And actually, Jesus would remind Joseph, too, one time, that he's not his dad. That incident at the temple. Jesus says, I'm in my father's house. Like, oh, that hurts. That would hurt so bad. What Joseph had to go through for Mary and for Jesus is unimaginable. You know, but what Joseph does is he dignifies and reminds us of the profound calling to be a man, to be a husband, and to be a father. He redeems what it means to be all these things. He is with Mary at every point in the journey. Not only assisting her, but protecting her. Fighting for her and the baby inside. Enduring and absorbing all the disdain and scorn of others. This is amazing. You know, my first month at, at Citizens, uh, which was last March, I joined a group of dozen, like a dozen so uh, men who were reading the book Intentional Fathers by John Tyson. It was one of the most powerful and amazing groups that I had a privilege of being a part of. Uh, and we only met for four weeks. You know, the book shares some interesting uh, findings, and I just want to share this with you. Children without fathers are four times likely to live in poverty, to suffer emotional and behavioral problems, have higher levels of aggressive behavior, two times the risk of infant mortality, and more likely to go to prison. The number is crazy. Four out of five inmates grew up without a dad. You know, this topic of manhood or husband or you know, being a father, I think can be triggering for some, understandably so, especially in our climate. Uh, in the conversation of manhood uh, and masculinity coming from a pastor in a church, I know it can be hard to swallow. Because to be honest, we've seen some gross examples uh, on this stage within churches about biblical manhood and masculinity. Um, and so I know this conversation might be difficult, but, you know, John Tyson in, his, in, in the same book, he, he wants to redeem this idea of manhood. And this is his definition. It's going to go up on the screen. A man is an image bearer and a son of God entrusted with power and the responsibility to create, cultivate, care, and defend for God's glory 
and the good of others. I, I, I like this definition, especially the last part, for the good of others. He goes on to say that the two main features of an intentional father, uh, and this applies to intentional husbands as well, is submission and servanthood. Submission and servanthood for men. This is what we're called to. And Joseph models this for us so well. Submission and servanthood. It is a reversal. What we have in Joseph is a reversal of the, man, of the men that preceded him. He, fa- he succeeded where Adam failed. If we look at it, he succeeded where Adam failed. When Eve was being tempted in the garden, he was just there, watching it all, failing to step in and intervene. And then when he was confronted by God, what does he do? He blames God. It's the woman you put in the garden with me that made me eat. He doesn't take responsibility. Joseph, in obedience to God, willingly placed himself in a very difficult situation. He denies himself. He sacrifices himself. He takes responsibility for a wife who's bearing a son that is not his. And one thing that we can easily miss is the intentionality of Joseph to raise his stepson. On the eighth day, he takes him to Jerusalem to get circumcised. After being 40 days old, he goes back to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice at the temple. He takes, him to, he takes him to the festival of the Passovers, of the Passover, and he taught Jesus how to be a carpenter. An amazing father. And the question that I just want to ask, a practical question that I want to ask families and fathers specifically, is do we have built-in rhythms and rituals that serve as a constant reminder that our lives and, the ch- and our children's lives, our marriage, actually belong to God? Let me ask that question one more time. Do we have built-in rhythms and rituals that serve as a constant reminder that our lives, that our marriage, and our children actually belong to God? And if I can just speak to the families for a moment. You know, our challenge is so different from our previous generation. You know, most of us, our parents, they were immigrants. Uh, They came here with nothing. And they did all that they could. This was their way of loving us to provide. So they were always working 60 hours, 80 hours just to provide for us. And so we didn't receive a lot of affirmation, a lot of affections uh, from them. But we have an opposite problem here in this time. I think we center our lives around our children. They are everything, activities, opportunities. Everything revolves around our kids. But here's the thing, our actions and our decisions as a family communicate what is of ultimate worth and value to our children. You would think that it would be unnecessary for the Son of God to be taken to all these different rituals, right? The eighth day, the 40 day, the festival of the Passover, right? You think that those are irrelevant, but this is a detail that I I, I don't think we, we should miss. Joseph, as a father, walked through with his son in these amazing ways. How much more so that we should with our children. 
you know, husbands and fathers here today, I want to celebrate you. I know it's not easy. The responsibility can be overwhelming. We are given a powerful calling to be men, to love our wives, and to raise our children. This is so hard. It can be so exhausting. And it can be filled with pain as well. You know, both Jason and I, we constantly talk and we have hopes and dreams uh, for the men here as citizens, from the youngest to the oldest. We want to cultivate men who submit and serve. We want to create a space like our women here where we can share our gifts, where we can open our lives so that people, we invite people and other men to speak into our lives. There's so much glory and beauty in the simplicity of Joseph and his quiet obedience. You know, it is in the daily, seemingly mundane and routine tasks where God fulfills his divine purpose and shows his goodness in and through us. You know, the reason why I love the Christmas story is because it doesn't shy away from the mess and the dysfunction of our lives. It's not despite our brokenness, but actually through them that God reveals himself and seeks to lead us to greater, a greater experience of joy and freedom. But I know that's hard work. You know, what all the individuals in Jesus' tattered family tree share in common is God's promise and his faithfulness. God's promise and faithfulness. No matter how broken they were, all the bad decisions that they made, and even all the havoc they, they, that they caused, God kept true to his promise to them. And each step that they took, God was with them. And he was orchestrating it all to fulfill his plan of redemption. That's the beauty of the Christmas story. And 2,000 years ago, that promise came to its fruition in Jesus Christ, the son of David. And what we see in Jesus is a greater Joseph. He came to take a bride for himself. But this bride would be stained with sin, stubborn, wayward, and rebellious. He too would travel distances in pursuit of this bride. He would leave his throne in heaven to involve himself in the mess of our lives so that you and I, we can be his bride. Jesus would pay a price for his bride. The highest bride price he paid with his very blood. And like Joseph, he too would have to endure the shame and the scorn. Although innocent, he would stand accused. And on that cross, he would absorb the shame that we had because of our sins. And although we give him reasons, endless reasons to leave us, to part ways with us, he doesn't. That's not even an option for him. Not even death can separate us from his love. This is the good news of the gospel. We are betrothed to Jesus. And we are waiting right now until he comes back. Where we will celebrate him, with him, in that wedding ceremony. Where for once and for all, we'll be united with him forever. Face to face. No more pain. No more sin. No more suffering. And we are waiting. 
You know, it is this finished work of Jesus on that cross and his promised return that gives us hope. Gives us hope in the mess, messiness and the broken experiences in our families. You know, the greatest gift of Christmas is Jesus, who is Emmanuel. God is with us. God is with you. Not when you're just doing well, but actually in the chaos of your life. When your marriage is struggling. When your kids are driving you crazy. When you feel like you're failing as a parent. When singleness is prolonged. When your job is not working out. When you're depressed. When you feel lonely. When you feel isolated. Emmanuel, God is with you. That's why he came. You know, we are all deficient. We are all broken. And if I just can say this, you're going to disappoint your spouse. You're actually going to mess up your kids. You're going to fall short. We're all going to fail. But the good news is, Jesus will never fail us. Through it all. He will never leave us, nor forsake us. It's in our deficiency that we're reminded of the amazing and profound devotion of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not going anywhere. You know, so many of us, we carry wounds from our families. And a lot of those wounds reopen during this time. The gospel offers a powerful remedy. That is a lot easier said than done. And that gift is forgiveness. That remedy is forgiveness. And I just want to say that, that forgiveness is a journey in itself. A very long one. So I'm not, I'm not saying this very flippantly. Forgiveness is so hard. There's so much in my own experiences that I know that it's going to take me a while. But there is hope. There is remedy. Because Jesus came to forgive us and to offer us reconciliation. And he also gives us community to be in this journey of forgiveness with. You know, this past weekend I was sitting around a table with, um, you know, six men who are in their 40s. We talked about life, we talked about marriage, we talked about our fathers. It was one of the most <laughs> profound experiences like I've, I've had. And, and through those conversations, they convicted me. My dad's coming this week. And there are things that I want to talk to him about because of that conversation. And I realized the gift of the church is such a powerful gift if we're just willing to invite people into our lives, into our brokenness. Forgiveness isn't easy. Reconciliation is so hard. But there's hope because of the Christmas story, because of Jesus Christ. There's hope to break the generational pattern of sin. We have hope in the midst of shame to break that shame cycle. Because of the love of Christ, he pursued us. In his love, he will never abandon us. And his love perseveres. And his love remains the same no matter what. You know, this Christmas, as we go through all the different emotions that we have, may we look to Jesus in those moments of pain and darkness, knowing that he is Emmanuel. He is with us. And ultimately that he's coming back for us. I hope you're encouraged today. Let's pray. God, I, I thank you so much uh, 
for the model and example of Joseph. And we give you praise and glory for our greater Joseph in Jesus Christ, who came, um, who set aside all his glory and privileges to pursue a bride that never sought after him, that continues to rebel and to seek other lovers, to endure the shame that we had, to pay with his blood, uh, to have us, and then to know uh, that, that he will come back for us one day. We thank you so much. God, I ask that you would remind us, open our eyes, help us to see the glory of the Christmas story. Help us to experience uh, and, and feel the embrace of your love in this time to a lot of us who are struggling, who are suffering in this season. May we feel Emmanuel. Holy Spirit, fill this place. Comfort our hearts as we stare at our scars and as we stare at our wounds. May we also see your wounds, the scars that you have, Jesus, and know Know that you will restore, that you will redeem, that there is hope in this lifetime, but also in the life to come. God, we thank you so much for, for Jesus. We thank you for Joseph and Mary and their story. Fill us with hope now as we respond in worship. We give you all the praise and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.